for being with us. Uh, welcome to Woodside Community Church. We're so glad that you guys are here. Um, take out your Bibles and begin turning to the second chapter of the book of Ruth, um, which you can find on page 222 in the Pew Bible. Uh, if you weren't here with us last week, we looked at the opening act of, of this beautiful story about Ruth. Um, except it doesn't open so beautifully, does it? Right? Last week was just a whole lot of darkness. It's, it's the period of the Judges, which was a very dark um, period. There's this Jewish family in Bethlehem, the house of bread, but there's a famine, so there is no bread in the house of bread. Right? More darkness. So then we're introduced to this, this family. We have Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons. And they are forced, well, they're not forced, they make a decision to leave the promised land and to go to Moab, which is a pagan Gentile nation, an enemy of Israel, which was also a dark place. The sons then marry two Moabite women. Um, listen, the only previous mention of Moabite women in the Bible was in reference to their leading the Israeli men um, into sexual immorality and the worship of a false god. So, more darkness. And then all of a sudden, all three of the men in Naomi's life die. So she is now a foreign woman, alone in a strange land. She is separated from the people of God. She is outside of the land of God and seemingly outside of the hand of God. Darkness, right? God seems absent. Things seem pretty hopeless for Naomi. But we looked at the hard yet important truth that God is still God in the dark. We saw how even um, when he seemed the most absent, he was actually the most present, um, working behind the scenes. He played an active part in the difficulties that Naomi encountered, but he was using those bad things to bring about her good. And then at the end of chapter 1, we saw this kind of like this hint, this this glimmer of hope, right? Signs that, that God was starting to work things around and bring about her good. Well, first, God saved the Moabite woman, Ruth. He converted her. He brought her from death to life. She confessed, your people shall be my people and your God my God, right? That is covenant language. That is salvation. And he called Ruth to commit herself, to bind herself to Naomi. So though Naomi felt alone, she actually was not at all. And then, as we finished, we saw that God brought an end to the famine. Bethlehem, the house of bread, once again had bread. So Naomi and Ruth come back home right at the beginning of barley harvest. So the chapter starts with famine and a departure, and it ends with harvest and a return. Right? So there, there seems to be some hope. And that brings us to chapter 2. We're going to see um, what happens next as a new character is introduced to our story, Boaz, right? And this is why most people love the book of Ruth. Ruth and Boaz are just really commendable and impressive characters. And their story is a romantic one, right? People love romance stories, right? This is, this is a love story. But again, we want to emphasize that there's a whole lot more going on here than just the relationship between Ruth and and Boaz. Yes, we want to look at them, we want to look at what happens um, to them, but this story was recorded and preserved for us. Right? There are important, timeless theological truths in this chapter that apply to all of us. Right? So what I want us to do is we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of Ruth and Naomi. Right? We're going to take their spot, and then we're going to look at Boaz as a type of Christ. 
Right? What, what Boaz does for Ruth in this story is a hint. It is a, a shadow, a picture of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Right? So there's three things that we're going to do. We're first going to see their problem and our problem, right? which is poverty, their financial poverty and our spiritual poverty. And then we're going to see God's um, solution. He, he provides four things through Boaz in this story. Provision, presence, protection, and purchase. And then we're going to close by looking at how we need to respond um, to that. As we, the choir just sung there with the, in the praise song, right? We, we respond in praise as Naomi said, uh, responds at the end of the story, right? So our poverty, God's solution, and then our response, right? So look down at Ruth chapter 2. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's a little long, but it's a good story. Um, starting in verse 1, uh, you can follow along as I read. This is the word of the Lord. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Well, then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she set beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean um, even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, in whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. 
And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to her, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Right, let's, let's begin um, with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity to gather together and worship you and to sit under um, the preaching of your word, um, Lord. Father, I pray that you would speak right now um, in this time. Um, Father, we thank you for this passage that is such a beautiful picture of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. So, Father, open our eyes to your grace and your goodness, and Father, lead us um, and to respond as Ruth and Naomi do um, in this passage. Father, this time is, is for you, and it's for your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we start with a problem, right? Remember, we ended last week with things starting to kind of look up for Ruth and Naomi, but they were not yet aware of this development, right? They're still two widows with no way to provide for themselves. And as Naomi said back in 121, she said, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty, right? She's empty, she thinks, right? And that's what this whole book is about, by the way. This book is a progression, a movement from emptiness to fullness. Right? We're going to see that same kind of progression here in just this one chapter. They're empty. They have no food. They have no family. They have no one to provide for them. Things are still looking pretty bleak from their perspective. Right? And this is, this is bad news for them, obviously. And as, as we've repeatedly said, right, uh, the good news has to always start off with the bad news. Right? The poverty of Naomi and Ruth is, is physical poverty. Our poverty is actually much more distressing because ours is a spiritual poverty. So 3,000 years ago for them, in a patriarchal, male-dominated society, it was very dangerous and very hopeless um, to be a widow. Right? That, that's why the loss of all the men in her life and the loss of any hope of having any sons was so distressing. She had nothing without them. No one to take care of her. No one to provide for her. And there was little that she could do about it. Right? Not a good situation. But our condition is actually far worse. Paul says that we are, are dead in our sins in Ephesians 2. In Romans 3, he says that none of us does anything good. None of us understand or even seek after God. None of us are righteous. That's bad because just two chapters earlier in Romans 1.18, Paul had just said that God's wrath is now revealed against all of our unrighteousness. So the Bible isn't pulling your punches. Right? It just says quite blatantly and unapologetically that we are all sinners, thus we are all separated from God, and that we justly deserve to remain separated from God for, for all eternity. And, and that's what hell simply is. So we're born into a state of great spiritual poverty and things look pretty hopeless. So our problem is far greater than we could imagine. But thankfully, so is the solution. And listen, this is significant. Because if I was up here talking to you and was able to, in 30 minutes, I mean, it would probably take me like 50 minutes at least, um, but if I was able to give you a guaranteed way to make an unlimited amount of money on the stock market with no risk whatsoever, right? you would all wake up and snap to attention, put down your phones, and hang on my every word. Right? Here's the hope uh, for great physical prosperity. Right? I'm convinced sometimes, even with myself, that we don't actually believe what we claim to believe. Right? We would give all of our money to learn a surefire way to make great wealth and solve our financial 
poverty. But for some reason, we seem to care much less about our spiritual poverty. Right? And so here in this chapter, we are getting a picture of what God has done for you to solve your greatest problem. Right? The only problem that actually really matters, which is your spiritual poverty. So there is nothing more important than what this passage um, teaches us. Listen, we're not studying the book of Ruth because it's a nice story or because we like romantic books. Right? So we rotate movies. I pick action movies and then sometimes I let Melissa pick you know, a romantic movie. Not often. So it's not like we just did Mark, so now it's the lady's turn for a romantic book. No, we're not studying that for this purpose. We're studying this book because it is a picture of the gospel. This book is in a microcosm, is a picture of what God has done for us. And the solution we see kind of pictured right away, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. Seemingly random and out of nowhere comes the announcement. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Right? Pretty, pretty cool name, isn't that? Bo knows foreshadowing Christ. Right? That's an early 90s reference if you were a Bo Jackson fan. Um, that's what Boaz is. Right? Boaz is a type of Christ. Boaz is here to give us a picture of Christ and what he does for us. And the author just kind of slyly introduces us to him here before going back to Ruth. It's kind of like this like alert. Say, hey, Pay attention, this guy's important, he, he, he's coming back, he's going to be kind of the center of the story. But first, we've got to deal with Ruth, and I, I love what Ruth does. Right? She doesn't just sit back and do nothing, right? they have no food, how are they going to eat, how are they going to provide for themselves? So she just leaps right into action, and she heads out into the fields. And here's where we see the first thing that God does for his people. Provision. God provides for his people. Ruth is a foreigner and she is jobless and she says in verse 2, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. What does that mean? Is she going to get a job? Is she going to steal something? What is she doing? No, she's going to glean, which is basically like kind of the ancient welfare system um, in Israel, except it's a whole lot better than our welfare system, right? When we think welfare, we think we just give people checks, um, and, and it actually ends up not really helping at all and just exacerbating the problem. But here, God has put into place this, this welfare system in which the poor could actually work to provide for themselves. The closest example that I can think of today um, was like the people that go around with their big carts collecting cans and bottles. Right? Listen, you're not making hardly any money um, doing that. Right? Well, well, the gleaning laws would have been like if our government kind of forced us to throw all of our cans and bottles on the street to leave for people to collect and turn in um, for money. Right? That's kind of what this is. It is a provision and an opportunity for the poor to work to earn their wages and to feed themselves. That's what gleaning is. Listen to Leviticus 19, um, verses 9 and 10. God says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Right, so it was a law that if you had a field, you owned it, it was yours. You didn't glean the whole, you didn't harvest the whole thing. Right? You left the edges um, for the poor to come, and you left kind of some stuff behind for them to gather and work and to supply um, themselves. Right? So this is God's law. Right? God required that this was done. He wrote into his um, system a law of provision for the poor. Why? 
Well, because God cares for the helpless. I love Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 through 19, and this, this crazy juxtaposition we get. It starts off very grand, like the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Right? That's really impressive. But then the next thing that it says is it says he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Here's this great and awesome and almighty God, and here's how he displays that, in the love for the poor and the widow and the alien. So just the very fact that Ruth has this opportunity to go and glean to provide food for her and Naomi is actually provision from God. Right? He is providing for and taking care of his people. Listen, he could have miraculously just dropped food um, from the sky as he did with the Israelites in Egypt. But, but God um, generally works through means, right? He puts systems in place to provide for the poor. And he also generally works to provide for his people through his people, right? And that brings us to Boaz. Ruth goes out to glean, but look at the end of verse 3. It was actually kind of humorous with what the author is doing here. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Well, the Hebrew literally re reads like her chance, chance, or as we would say, as, as luck would happen. Right? It's kind of a joke. It, it, the author's being a little bit funny. In, in this book that is specifically about the secret providence of God that is behind all things, the author here is having a little fun. He's trying to, to get your attention. Man, she was, she was really lucky to end up in the field of Boaz, right? But again, as we go, right, it becomes abundantly clear that luck had nothing to do with it, right? Sometimes, you know, you're playing a board game, like Monopoly or Risk, and someone's like, oh, that was a really lucky roll of the dice. But Proverbs 16.33 in one translation actually says, we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall, right? So when you land on that hotel boardwalk, right, it was actually determined before time that that's where you were going to be, right? There is no luck. There is no chance, right? Ruth ended up in Boaz's field because God wanted Ruth to end up in Boaz's field. So Ruth is out there working, and in verse 4, Boaz finally kind of grandly enters um, onto the stage, and he seems to be pretty impressive. If you think about it, Boaz is one of the most positively portrayed human characters in the whole Bible. Like we, we think about Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. But with those guys, right, we also get this kind of a litany of sins and weaknesses and mistakes that they make. Right? We don't get any of that with Boaz. This is truly a man who is worth emulating. Yes, Boaz and Ruth are portrayed in this book as people we should strive to be like. Right? They are faithful. They are kind. They are generous. They are sacrificial. Be like Ruth and Boaz. But we've got to make sure we go about um, saying that in the right way. We've got to make sure we first understand what is behind their character and why they are the way that they are. Right? But we'll come back to that. So Boaz is here. He's on the scene. And listen, the first thing that he does is he takes notice of Ruth. Right? That's clearly what's going on here. I remember um, 12 years ago, I, I thought my wife was going to be in the nursery. Now she's going to turn red, so I apologize. But I remember 12 years ago, it, it's in like two or three weeks, 12 years ago, in this month, right? my, my first class, uh, my first semester at Carolina, this big 400-person intro to American history class, right? that was my major. And I remember seeing that red hair on that one of those first days and be like, oh, man, I like that red hair. Um, but... 
I was like 18. Um, I looked like I was 12. Um, I, so I just sat in the back, and there was, she was way out of my league. No hope whatsoever. But I just kind of lobbed it away uh, back there. Right? But then, very providentially, uh, six years later, I would again see her uh, across the giant church um, that we were both attending. And this time, I took the Boaz approach. I was with a friend. I yelled and I said, hey, man, whose woman is this um, over here? And asked her, who, who is this? Um, and then with with the wonders of Facebook um, stalking, I tracked her down, I asked her out, um, and the rest of it is history. But sadly um, for her, I am much less impressive um, than Boaz. But listen, there's clearly something brewing here, right? All of a sudden, his focus is solely on Ruth. This woman is a foreigner. Uh, she's a widow. She's impoverished, working, basically begging among the poor, gleaning just to survive, and he sets his sights, he sets his favor on her. And I love verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, right, he just, bam, he just goes straight for Ruth. No dragging his feet, no Facebook stalking, no dating etiquette, just boom, Ruth, let's talk. And this, then, is our second P, presence, right, Boaz is present with Ruth. It just, it's pretty obvious, almost not even worth mentioning, right? You, you can't have a relationship without presence, right? So, so the first thing that Boaz does is he simply, he goes to her. He is with her. And in verse 14, he, he invites her to dine with him, which is itself a sign that, that something is going on here, right? Because to dine with someone was, was much more significant than it is today. Remember, the Pharisees in Jesus' time, they would not even eat with Samaritans or Gentiles. They were scandalized that Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners because to eat with someone was to link yourself, was to associate yourself with that person. Right? It was kind of to extend the hand of fellowship to them. Gleaners did not eat with the owners of the field. Yet here Ruth finds herself at Boaz's table. Presence. He is with her. And then we've already seen God provide food for Ruth through the gleaning laws and through um, Boaz's obedience to those laws. But we also see Boaz here go above and beyond those laws to provide abundantly for Ruth. He provides a meal for her. And then in verse 15, he, he tells his workers to let her glean right among them and to purposefully kind of drop some of the extra grain behind for her to pick up. Verse 17 tells us that in total, she walked away with an ephah of barley, which would be about 30 pounds of barley. Uh, a, a pound of barley was what kind of the average poor person could expect to glean and survive off of per day. Like she has just gained and earned a month's um, worth of barley in this one day because of the generosity and the care of Boaz. He has provided abundantly for her. But he's also protected her. Back up in verse 8, he says, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Well, listen, gleaning was, was a man's job. That was, that was man's work. So a foreign widowed woman gleaning among the male workers of the field was very likely a potentially dangerous situation. Right? But Booth comes in and he provides security. He, he makes sure and, and heads that off at the beginning. Right? He is taking care of Ruth. So provision and presence and, and protection. That is a whole lot that he has done for this woman that he does not know. Right? But we haven't even gotten um, to the good part yet. But first, we need to go back and look at their conversation and tackle one very important question. Why? Like, 
Why is he doing all of this for Ruth? Verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I chewed on these verses for a long time and just kind of stared at them um, for a while. Here, here's the most important question in the world. Why have I found favor? Remember in the Old Testament, favor and grace are basically the same, it's the same word, right? Why have I found or received grace? And if Boaz's relationship with Ruth is supposed to be a picture of God's relationship with us, on the surface, this, this kind of seems to pose a little bit of a problem. Why have I found favor, Boaz? Because of the good things that you did for Naomi. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. Well, wait a second, right? Is that not works righteousness? Is this not what I've been saying for over a year, um, what religion is, right? We work and we earn and we do good and, and God will have to turn and respond and repay us and reward us for that good, right? Isn't that what Boaz is saying here? You did these good things, all right, here I'm going to reward you. Well, no, it's actually not because we can never forget the order um, of the action, right? That, that, that really matters, right? The end of verse 12 is the key, end of 12. May a reward be given you by God, he says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And we said last time that that was pretty, pretty common Old Testament uh, metaphor for salvation. Psalm 51.7, David cries out, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. David doesn't say, be merciful to me, be merciful to me, for I have done these good things. No, he says, be merciful to me because I have taken refuge in you. Now, this is not a cry of, look what I've done. This is a cry of helplessness. Right? I have no hope. I need refuge. Save me. Right, so the point of this passage is not salvation by works. This is, this is very clearly salvation by grace. Ruth has taken refuge under God's wings. She has recognized her spiritual poverty, and she has clung to God as her only hope. Thus, he, he has rescued her. He has saved her and brought her new life. So God's action always comes first. Right? He initiates, then we act, and then we Respond. We can love because he has first loved us. Ruth was able to leave the refuge of her home and family because she had found true refuge in God. And it was because she had found true refuge in God that then she was able to in turn love and serve Naomi so sacrificially. Right? So God had saved her and done this amazing thing for her. And thus she rightly desired to demonstrate that love to others, um, particularly to Naomi. Why have I found favor? Because you sought refuge under God's wings. Why did I seek refuge under God's wings? Grace and grace alone. Right? God pursued Ruth. And he did one more amazing thing that we see hinted at here toward the end of this chapter. But we're going to look at it um, more fully um, next week. At the end of the day, Ruth goes back. She's got this tiny little Jewish woman probably with this big bag of 30 pounds of barley on her. On her, and then it, she she goes to Naomi. Naomi's just shocked. Whose field were you in? Where where did you glean all of this food? 
And it seems that Ruth truly doesn't yet know um, Boaz or understand the significance of what's going on here. But, but Naomi does. When Ruth tells her that it was a man named Boaz, look at what Naomi says at the end of verse 20. Now here's where things really start to take a turn. Here's where things really start to look up. Right? Some food is nice, um, but listen, that'll run out. Um, they still haven't really solved the problem of their poverty. But now there is hope. Right? The end of verse 20. The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Boaz is a redeemer, what is often referred to as a, a kinsman redeemer. And you don't have to be a seminary student to understand the link between this and Jesus. Right? Next week, uh, we'll, we really will get into what it means for Boaz to be a redeemer. But this is the best possible thing that he could do for Ruth and Naomi. He is going to purchase them. And that's what it means to redeem something. It means to, to purchase, to buy back. And here's where we so clearly see the link between the book of Ruth and the gospel. Isn't this a, a great story? Yes, it's beautiful. But it's about so much more than Ruth and Boaz. It is about God and his people. We are the ones with the poverty problem. But isn't the solution, right, that, that God gives a hint of through Boaz so amazing? This is what he has done for us in this one little chapter in an infinitely bigger way. He provides for us, right? Boaz provided physical sustenance, and in effect, he saved their physical lives. God provides for us spiritual sustenance and saves our spiritual lives. He protects us. Psalm 28.7 says that God is our strength and our shield, right? Psalm 18.2 describes God as our rock and our fortress in whom we take refuge. Psalm 27.1 says that God is our light and our salvation. Whom shall I fear? And in Romans 8.31 it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's, it's a rhetorical question. Right? He, he, he's not actually asking. No, the answer is no one. Right? If our life and eternity is secure, then we have nothing to fear in this life. God is protecting us and nothing, he says, can separate us from him. Thus, we have nothing to fear. And he also graciously provides us his very presence. The whole story of the Bible is about how God um, makes a way for a sinful man to be brought back into the presence of a holy God. That was the whole point of the temple. But the temple's gone. It has been replaced. Jesus is God present with us. He is Emmanuel. We have the privilege of being in a real personal relationship with the creator and sustainer of the universe. Listen, that should absolutely astound us. That is unbelievable. You get to live and operate in relationship with God himself. He has freely offered us his presence even after we have rejected him time and time again. So provision, protection, presence. How can he do those three things for us? Well, only because of the fourth thing. Because of the purchase. He can provide for us because he has redeemed us. He has bought us back. He has rescued us um, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place. Jesus is the true and the better Boaz. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Ruth, as we said kind of at the beginning, is a story about movement from emptiness to fullness. Right? That's the progression of the book from beginning to end. Well, the gospel is a story about uh, fullness to emptiness so that we can be moved from emptiness to fullness. Right? The gospel is a story of fullness 
to emptiness so that we can be moved from emptiness to fullness. Right? Colossians 1.19 says that in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Philippians 2.6 talks about Jesus who, though he was God, he was in the form of God, he did not even count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was more full than we can even begin to imagine. He was God. He had everything. But the remarkable message of the gospel is that the preeminent one humbled himself. The creator became a creature. 2 Corinthians 8-9 is a perfect summary of Ruth chapter 2 and of the gospel. Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See that? Rich to poor, so that poor can go to rich. Right? Jesus moved from fullness to emptiness, so that you could be moved from emptiness to fullness. That's the gospel. Right? It is substitution. It is an exchange of positions. He's getting your place. You are taking his. Right? This isn't a list of rules um, about you have to keep. This isn't like some, like, I'll do these things and you'll be saved. No, this is a rescue. This is a relationship. It's, it's the most amazing story ever written. And it's so fascinating that we get this kind of little picture of it even a thousand years before it happens in the relationship of Ruth and Boaz. Right, but let's, let's finish up here and close by looking at, at their response back in verse 20. It's clear that Naomi's attitude, her disposition, her, her understanding of what's going on, it's, it's starting to change. Whereas earlier she said, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now here she cries out, may he be blessed by the Lord, the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Right? So she prays this prayer of blessing for Boaz, but notice what else she is doing. She is now recognizing the goodness and the kindness of God. Right? She recognizes that though she felt forsaken and alone, he actually has not forsaken her at all. She's starting to see. The light is beginning to dawn. Just because God has sent these difficult things her way does not mean that God is against her. He is for her. He is using these dark things to bring about a great light. Bad things to bring about good for Naomi. And she's starting to see it. And she's starting to praise him for it. And I cannot uh, emphasize enough how um, important and comforting that truth is. Right? As we really looked at last week, there are going to be times in the future when you face some very difficult things. Right? None of this prosperity gospel garbage is going to help. Right? None of this um, health, wealth, and happiness. Right? The, the, the story of Ruth should, should just blow that idea up. Right? God doesn't want to just make you healthy, wealthy, and happy in this life. He's got much bigger and much more important plans. Right? He is more concerned with your character and your life in eternity. And because that is the case, he sometimes sends us very hard things in this life for the sake of our good in that life. Right? And it's in the midst of those hard things that you've got to understand the message of Ruth. God is there, and he is working behind the scenes. Right? Even though your circumstances may be bad, even though you may at the time feel forsaken and alone, it is then that you must most cling to this truth. God is good, and he is working to bring about your good.
good if you are His. He is most concerned with providing a solution to the one problem that we have that really matters, our spiritual poverty. He provides for us. He protects us. He is present with us. He pursues us and He purchases us. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Do you, do you believe that? Because I know that Sometimes we really don't. Man, it sure doesn't seem like God is, is supplying some of my needs right now. But if He's not, then it must not at that time actually be a need. Right? John Newton, the famous writer of Amazing Grace, once wrote, everything is necessary that God sends. Right? Tell that to, to Naomi at the end of chapter 1. He says, everything that God sends is necessary. Right? But then he says, um, at the same time, um, nothing can be necessary, which he withholds. Everything that God sends is necessary. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. So whatever hard things or difficult things you are facing, God deems those things necessary. Whatever needs you think that you have that he is not supplying, he deems at this time to not be necessary, right? He is God and we are not. And he has promised to supply every actual need that we have, right? He knows what we need, and we see here on His promise that He will supply. But if this whole Jesus thing is true, then listen, the only real need that matters is your spiritual need, right? And He has provided for that. He has purchased you um, through Jesus Christ. Take, take refuge then in the shadow of His wings. All right, let's close um, with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you um, for the picture that you've given us here of salvation and of the gospel. Father, we thank you that you are God who provides for his people. You, you protect us. You are present with us. You, you have purchased us um, through the work of your son, um, Jesus Christ, um, Lord. So we thank you for solving our spiritual poverty. We thank you um, that Jesus Christ, um, though he was rich, became poor so that we who were eternally poor could become eternally rich. You have provided over and abundantly um, for our needs. Um, Lord. So we thank you for that. Father, I pray that those truths would, would sink in and they would shape and they would form us. And it would be like Ruth, that when she experienced the grace and the mercy of God, her desire then was to turn around and to share that grace and mercy with others, um, particularly Naomi. Father, I pray that because of what you have done for us, we would then go out there and do likewise for others. Father, that we would want to serve and love them because you have so served and loved us through Jesus. So, Father, we thank you for the good news. We thank you for the gospel in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.